Revelation chapter 4, we last week talked about the rapture. And in chapter 4 and verse number 1, the Bible says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Revelation 4.1 is the rapture of the church. And we said last week that the rapture and the second coming are two parts of the same thing. We oftentimes, people oftentimes refer to the rapture as the second coming. The rapture is when the Lord comes for the saints. We're caught up together. He doesn't come down to the earth, but he comes in the clouds. We're caught up with him. Then there'll be the seven-year period of tribulation. And then the second coming, he comes back to the earth with the saints. So he comes for the saints, then he comes with the saints to the earth and sets up his kingdom and rules and reigns on, on this earth for a thousand years. And we're looking forward to that time when the Lord comes back again. I think that Israel is God's time peace, and we keep an eye on Israel. We see some things going on right now that get our attention, don't they? Make us think about what's going to happen, what God's going to do, and what God has in, in store for us. Johannes Stoffler was a highly respected scientist as well as a relig religious figure back in the 16th century in Germany. He was a professor of astronomy and mathematics at the University of Tübingen, and later he became the head of the university, the rector as they were called. In 1499, Stoffler plotted the movements of the planets and he found that in 25 years, they would form an alignment with the constellation Pisces. Since Pisces is the sign of the fish, Stoffler concluded that the planetary con conjunction within that particular uh, astrological sign signaled the coming of a great deluge which would cover the entire earth. And he announced that this great flood would begin on February the 20th of 1524. Because of Stoffler's high status as a scientist and religionist and advisor to the royalty, many people in Germany and other European nations took his prediction very, very seriously. And as the predicted catastrophe grew near, pamphlets were distributed all over the country that warned people and urged them to prepare for this coming flood. I'm sure they would have liked to have had that back in Noah's day. But many people that were actually living in the lower areas of the country sold their property at oftentimes a great loss to, to those who were opportunistic people, skeptics of what was going to take place. Boats were bought, boats were built, they were stocked with provision. Many abandoned their properties and camped out on mountaintops. Among these boat builders was a German, uh, Count von Egelheim, who constructed a three-story ark. It was large enough for his family and for several other families that were friends of his to get on the ark. And before sunrise on the predicted date, Egelheim and his entourage entered the ark and his servants loaded it with supplies for the duration of the flood. 
Soon there was, as expected, a large crowd of people that had gathered outside the ark. It was composed mostly of curiosity seekers and flood skeptics. Some of them mocked and jeered as the families got on the ark, but the jeering turned to panic as raindrops started to fall. The crowd surged toward the craft. They trampled several people to death in the stampede. They pounded on the ark. They demanded that Ingelheim let them on board, and when he refused, the mob literally took over and stormed the boat. They dragged the count from the, from the ark that he had built and stoned him to death. Shortly afterwards, the rain shower ended. And the day passed into history without another drop of rain falling that day. Through the years, there have been a lot of predictions of catastrophes, haven't there? Sometimes they've terrified people throughout history. Most of the time, like Stoffler's, they were false. Many of us remember the Y2K scare, don't we, back in 2000. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but I'm sure a lot of you stocked up on water and food and, and propane and all kinds of things because the experts predicted that the computers would fail to function after midnight on December the 31st, 1999. Now, I know some of you are too young to remember that, but most of us remember it vividly. They said the programs wouldn't work or the computers wouldn't work because they weren't programmed. They weren't able to handle the changeover of the, of the number sequence into the next millennium. And yet we all lived through it, didn't we? Those of us who were alive at that time. There have been other events that have passed that happened just like they were predicted. In 1783, Ezra Stiles predicted a president of Yale University. He analyzed the, prop, the population growth of the, of the countries in Europe, and he predicted that the U.S. population would reach over 300 million by the year of 1983. He was right. In 1840, Alexis Tocqueville accurately predicted the Cold War during the second half of the second century or the 20th century. How can we tell when some of these things that were predicted, how can we tell they're false predictions and others are true predictions? Well, there's one sure measure, and that is if they come to pass, right? When they don't come to pass, we know they're false. And we can look at the accuracy of the track record of the person who's making the prediction. Every event prophesied in the Bible has occurred exactly as it was prophesied, except for those that are still remaining to be fulfilled in the end times. The flood of Noah, the famine in Egypt, the captivity of the Jewish people and the return to their homeland, the sequence of the rising and falling of nations from Babylon all the way down through Rome, and the destruction of Jerusalem, all of those come to mind as things that were predicted in Scripture and came to pass exactly as they were predicted. The Bible's record of 100% accuracy in prophesying events of the past gives to us absolute confidence that when God prophesies something in the future, it will take place. Amen? 
He will fulfill those prophecies exactly as he has given them. One of the most persistent prophecies of catastrophic events yet to come is what we call and what Bible scholars call the tribulation period. It's a period that's going to be filled with unprecedented horrors and upheavals and persecution and all sorts of natural disasters that will take place. Massive slaughters and political turmoil in the years prior to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ back to this earth. And all of us who accept the authority of the Bible believe that the tribulation will occur. We believe the rapture will occur. And we believe the tribulation will follow it. In our world today, with all of the spiraling chaos that is taking place right now, we began to think about and we began to look ahead to those things that the Bible has prophesied are going to come to pass in the future. And I want us to look this morning at this subject of the tribulation and notice some things about it. We'll, we'll cover part of that this morning and then look at part of it tonight. But first of all, notice with me the picture of the tribulation. We said the rapture will take place and then there'll be seven year time of tribulation on the earth and then the Lord will come back at the second coming to establish his kingdom here on this earth. I found that many wonderful people wonder what the tribulation is. Some people even wonder what the word means. The word tribulation is not used a whole lot in our conversation today, in our normal speaking. Most of us are only aware of it because of the biblical emphasis of it and because of reading and studying and knowing our Bible. Tribulation is the, translated from the Greek word philipsis, it means a giant weight used to crush grain into flour. Now think about that for a minute. A giant weight that was used to crush grain into flour. When we think about the tribulation, when you get to study it, you're going to understand there are some giant weights, some giant catastrophes that take place that are literally going to crush the enemies of God into powder. And that's part of what the tribulation is all about. Many of the bi modern Bible translations have even taken the word tribulation out of it. They've used words that are more common to our language today, words like affliction or persecution or trouble or suffering or misery or distress or oppression. But none of those really have the force of the Bible word tribulation. When we think about the word tribulation... The Bible tells us that it's something's going to occur in the future at an unprecedented time. It's going to take place at a time when we are not exactly aware of. It's unspecified. And yet, it is a, a time of terrible, terrible judgments that are going to take place upon this earth. As we think about that word tribulation... I want you to notice the surprise of the tribulation. In his first letter to the church at Thessalonica, the Apostle Paul describes the events that take place prior to the tribulation. And he tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses that we looked at last week. He says in verse 13, For I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. 
For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remained unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now these are words that the Apostle Paul was writing. We talked about them last week. He's answering some questions of the church at Thessalonica about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, about the rapture. And he says, one day the trumpet's going to sound, the voice of the archangel, the saved are going to be called up and will be caught out of this world together to be with the Lord. And he says, so shall we ever be with the Lord. And then he says, wherefore comfort one another with these words. It brings great comfort to us when we understand that Jesus is coming back and one day we're going to be caught up out of this world. And we're looking forward to that time, that time that we call the rapture of the church. The next natural question for Paul's readers would be, when will this happen? When is this going to take place? And Paul anticipated that question. And so in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, he gives us these words in verses 1 and 2. He says, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. The day of the Lord, he says, so cometh as a thief in the night. That phrase, the day of the Lord, includes everything that happens from the rapture all the way through the tribulation and through the millennial period of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul was saying that you cannot know when the rapture is going to occur. We saw that last week. No man knoweth the day nor the hour. We don't know any more than we do when a thief's, we know when a thief's going to come and ransack our house. I don't think any of us have ever gotten a letter from a thief that said tomorrow night at 2 o'clock, I'm going to come and I'm going to rob your house. No, the thief comes unexpectedly. And the coming of the Lord is going to be unexpectedly. It is a surprise. And then notice the severity of the, tri of the tribulation. It's going to be severe. Nowhere in all of the Bible do you find one word that says anything good about the tribulation. Unless maybe it's the fact that it's going to end after seven years. That's a good thing, that it will come to an end. Moses in Deuteronomy 32, 35 called it the day of their calamity. Zephaniah said it was the day of the Lord's anger in Zephaniah 2, 2. Paul referred to it as the wrath to come in 1 Thessalonians 1, 10. John called it the hour of temptation in Revelation 3 and verse 10. Daniel described it as a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation in Daniel 12.1. Zephaniah said that day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wastedness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers. Jesus told us, that the tribulation would be a time of terror and horror without precedent. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 21 and 22, he said, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. 
And except those days were shortened, there should be no flesh saved. For the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. And the central chapters of the book of Revelation give to us a, a vivid description of the horrors that will take place during that tribulation time. Great wars will ravage the world as nations will rise up against nation, desiring to have power and control of the world. All peace will end. There'll be rampant slaughter and bloodiness all over the earth. Hail and fire will burn up the earth's grass and destroy a third of all of the trees. Intense famine will dry up the food supplies. Rivers and seas will become too polluted to sustain life. Many of the rivers will actually dry up entirely. The sun will scorch the earth and its inhabitants with fire. A quarter of the world's population will die from war and starvation and from beastly predators. Giant earthquakes accompanied by thunder and lightning will destroy many of the cities. Mountains will crash into the sea, killing a third of the fish. Tidal waves from that cataclysm will sink a third of all the world's ships. A massive meteor will strike the earth. Ashes and smoke rising from its devastation will hide the sun and the moon. Swarms of demonic insects will darken the sun and inflict painful stings. Rampant epidemic plagues will kill a third of all mankind. Everyone from national leaders to servants and slaves will flee, the Bible says, to the mountains and cry out for the rocks and the caves, the rocks and the stones to fall upon them and hide them from the wrath of him which is to come. To make matters worse, there'll be a cruel, oppressive ruler known as the Antichrist who will rise to power he will be many times more demonic than Antiochus IV or Nero or Stalin or Hitler or all of them combined. He will demand total allegiance to his satanic inspired program that he has for the world. And those that we resist him will be barred from buying or selling food or any other products. His lust for power will not cease until the entire civilized world chokes under his controlling grasp. It is not an overstatement to say that the tribulation will be hell on earth. It'll be a terrible time. And I might say, after saying all of that, that there are people that think that we're living in the tribulation right now. <laughs> they don't have any idea or clue of what's going to come in the future. Dwight J. J. Dwight Pentecost who's a, a great author and preacher, tells us that there's no escape or relief. He says this, and I quote, he said, no passage can be found to alleviate to any degree whatsoever the severity of this time that shall come upon the earth. When people today see the order and the stability that we have known through the years begin to crumble, we begin to get a little bit anxious, don't we? When we see what's happening around us, especially what's happening in Israel right now, we start thinking, does this mean that the end times are upon us? Does the rise of Russia and the, and the isolation of Israel and the terror of ISIS and Hamas and Hezbollah and the chaos, of all, the chaos of all the immigration that's taking place in our country, in America, does all of this that we see mean that we are in the tribulation? Does it mean that we who know the love of the Lord Jesus Christ are destined to endure and to go through all of those things? Or is there some way that we might be delivered from it? 
Well, let's see what the Bible says about it, all right? Look with me, secondly, at the purpose of the tribulation. We understand that it's going to be a severe time when God's judgment is poured out upon this earth. Why is God going to do all of that? What is the judgment? What is the purpose of all of this? I believe that the tribulation will be brought on this earth by man's increasing rebellion and by his rampant sin that we see taking place when men today literally are shaking their fists in the face of God, when they're mocking his word. We just celebrated, we didn't, but our world did, Pride Month in June. And, And I don't know about you, but I was a little bit sick of all the stuff that I saw taking place in our world today. People that are literally shaking their fist in the face of God, making fun of God. And I believe that God's hand will heavily be involved in the tribulation period, just as it was when he brought the plagues on the nation of Israel, one after another and another. And you study the book of Exodus, and God devastated the nation of Egypt. And all the destruction, the tribulation is a planned program designed by God to accomplish several goals. First of all, the tribulation will purify Israel. It will purify Israel. The Jewish nation exists today as a result of the promises that God made to a nation and to Abraham. God promised Abraham that his seed would be as the stars of the sky and as the sands of the sea in Genesis 12 and 15. The Jewish nation has tested God's patience throughout the years Over and over again, they've turned away from God time and time again, and God has brought judgment, and God has taken them into captivity, and God has dealt with them. But despite Israel's persistent rebellion, God still keeps his promise. Not only because he is God, not only because he does not break his promises, but also because of his deep love for the nation of Israel. Israel, the Bible says, is the apple of God's eye. One of the last phases of his promise to Israel was fulfilled in 1948 when the nation was reestablished on its originally promised land. Yet after all God's care to preserve the scattered Jews throughout the centuries, he's enabled them to remain intact and to inherit their land. They still remain rebellious against God today. So the first purpose of the tribulation is going to be to purge out the Jewish rebels and to bring about the conversion of the nation of Israel. There'll come a time when Israel as a nation will acknowledge Jesus Christ as the true Messiah. The Jewish people rejected Jesus when he came the first time. In John 1 in verse 11, he says, and he came unto his own, but his own what? Received him not. They rejected him. The tribulation will be the fire that purifies Israel, that burns out the dross, that burns out the impurities of the nation of Israel. As the prophet Ezekiel recorded for us back in in Ezekiel chapter 20, listen to what he says there in verses 7 and 37 and 38. He says, And I will cause you to pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant, and I will pour out from among you the rebels and them that transgress against me, I will bring them forth out of the country where they sojourn, and they shall not enter into the land of Israel, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. God says, I'm going to purge out all of the rebellious people. 
And those that are left will be those who will acknowledge that Jesus is the true Messiah. Moses wrote of Israel's purging in the last days, and, and he, he urged the nation of Israel to, dis, to respond and to turn back to God. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, listen to what the Bible says in verse 30 and 31. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse number 30. He says, When thou art in tribulation, and all these things are come upon thee, even the latter days, if thou turn to the Lord thy God and shall be obedient unto his voice, for the Lord thy God is a merciful God, he will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers, which he sware unto them. Moses warned them about the purging that was going to take place. The Apostle Paul left no question as to whether this purging prophesied by Moses and Ezekiel would be effective. Listen to what Paul said in Romans chapter number 11 and verses 26 and 27. Romans chapter 11, in verse 26, he says, And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. Thank God there's coming a day when all Israel shall be saved, and the nation will turn to the true and to the living God. So first of all, the tribulation is it will purify Israel. The second purpose of the tribulation is it will punish sinners. It will punish sinners. It's going to purify Israel. That's the Jew. And then God's going to bring judgment on the sinners, the Gentiles who rejected him as well. The overall purpose will be to execute judgment, God's judgment, God's wrath on all those who oppose him. First the Jews and then the Gentiles. Listen to what Paul said in Romans 1 and verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. We like to think and speak about the love of God. We don't like to talk that much about the wrath of God, do we? And yet, love and wrath go hand in hand. They're two sides of the same coin. We have a God who is infinitely good and loving, but we also have a God who hates evil and a God who will judge evil. In fact, evil is the enemy of good. Evil is like a parasite. It's like a blight. It's like a cancer on goodness. It feeds on and destroys that which is good. Therefore, God rightly directs his wrath against evil. Back over in the book of Isaiah, chapter 13, I want you to hear what the Lord says there in verses 10 and down through verse 13. Isaiah chapter 13 and beginning in verse number 10. He says this, he says, For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease. Boy, we need that today, don't we? And will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man than the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore I will shake the heavens, and the earth shall remove out of the place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts, and in the day of his fierce anger. The wrath of God. The prophet Nahum 
explained the nature of God's wrath in this way. In Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, he says, God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. To sum it all up, the purpose of the seven-year period of the tribulation will be to expose unregenerated people, those among the Jews and the Gentiles as well, to the wrath of Almighty God. And you know it's interesting, just as the sun hardens the clay, and the same sun will soften the butter, God's wrath will harden the hearts of some, and it will soften the hearts of others. That shows to us the purpose of the tribulation. That purpose includes both punishment, but also conversion. There will be the wrath of God, but there's also the mercy of God, and people will have the opportunity, and many will come to know the Lord as their Savior during that time. And so it depends on how the objects of God's wrath respond to it. So we see that The tribulation is going to purify Israel. It's going to punish sinners. Thirdly, the the tribulation will will prove God's power. It will prove God's power. I don't have time to read it. You can read it on your own. But chapter 6 of Revelation all the way through 18. After in chapter 4, the church is gone. You read in chapter 6 through 18, the tribulation and all of the wrath and the judgments of God that are going to take place. And just like Pharaoh mocked God and made fun of him and suffered the wrath of God and the nation of Israel experienced the wrath of God, so the boasting Antichrist and all of those who follow him will suffer God's wrath as well. In Revelation 13 and verse 4, the Bible says, And they worshiped the dragon which gave power unto the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? God's going to deal with them. And they will experience the wrath of Almighty God. I don't have time, but you can read in Revelation chapter 16, that whole chapter, verse 1 down through verse 21, talks about the wrath of God. In the beginning of the chapter, it says, I heard a great voice out of the the temple saying unto the seven angels, Go your way and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. The first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon those which worshipped his image. The second poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as blood of dead men, and every living soul died in the sea. The third poured out his vial upon the rivers and the fountains of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which are and wast and shall be, because thou hast judged us. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, and they are worthy. And he goes on and talks about the wrath of God being poured out during that time. The tribulation will prove God's power, and this whole world will see the power of Almighty God as he pours out his wrath on this earth. By the way, I'm glad we don't have to go through that. Amen. If God's wrath is dealing with the nation of Israel to purify them, and he's pouring out his wrath on unbelievers... We are believers, aren't we? There's no need for the church to go through that. And part of that is because the wrath of God was taken for us on the cross at Calvary by the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the tribulation will also prepare a martyred multitude for heaven. 
It'll prepare a martyred multitude for heaven. In Revelation chapter 7, if you look there with me in verse 9, it talks about that. In Revelation 7 verse 9, it says, And after this I beheld and lo, a great multitude which no man could number. Think about that. A great multitude that no man could number of all nations and kindred and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. The white robes speak of the righteousness of Christ. Verse 10, And cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne, and about the elders and the four beasts, and fell before the throne on their faces, and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and power, and might be unto our God forever and ever. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence are they? Who are this multitude of people that's without number? Verse 14, I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. During that tribulation period, the wrath of God is poured out and some men will harden their hearts and cry for the rocks and the stones and the mountains to fall upon them and hide them from the wrath of God. But many are going to turn to God and there's going to be a multitude that says the, it's so great that it cannot be numbered. These are they which came out of great tribulation, have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The tribulation will prepare a martyred multitude for heaven. And then the last purpose for the tribulation is it will proclaim Satan's demise. It will proclaim Satan's demise. In Revelation chapter 12, in verse number 12, it says, Therefore rejoice ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and to the end of the sea. For the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. And then if you look over in chapter number 20 in verse number 7 of Revelation, he says there in Revelation 20 verse 7, And when the thousand years are expired, during the thousand many millennial reign of Christ, the devil's going to be bound in the bottomless pit, chained there. But after the thousand years, he's going to be loosed. It says Satan will be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to destroy the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed, and compassed the camp of the saints about. And the beloved city, that's Jerusalem, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And notice verse 10, And the devil that deceiveth them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. One of these days, that old devil is going to be cast into the lake of fire and he's going to be tormented forever and forever. He's not going to be someone in control down there handing out shovels or pitchforks or whatever people imagine. He's going to be the most tormented creature forever and forever. And so there we see a picture. We see the purposes of the tribulation. God's going to deal with the nation of Israel. And God's going to deal with the unbelievers. God's going to raise up a martyred multitude and he's going to deal with Satan and destroy him and cast him into the lake of fire forever and ever.
Dr. R.G. Lee, who was the famous pastor, he was president for a while of the Southern Baptist Convention and longtime pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee, where Adrian Rogers followed him later on. But he shared a story about the call of Christ as our Lord and our Savior. He said, a century ago in the backwater village deep in the mountains of Virginia, there was a community school consisting of just one room. Students of all grades attended that school, mostly children that came out of the mining communities and the logging families in the mountains. The older boys who had been raised to survive the hard life of the mountains were tough and mean-spirited. No teacher at the school had lasted for more than two months. Some of them had only lasted for just a few days because these boys took great pride in their ability to run off every teacher and anyone who was daring or naive enough to take the job. Shortly after, yet another teacher left. A young man, fresh out of teacher's college, applied for the job. The moment he walked into the office for the interview, the director took pity on him. He didn't want this young man, this green teacher, to face the impossible odds that he would face in this school and to end his first teaching experience in great discouragement. I frankly advise you not to take this job, said the director. You have no idea what you're going to be up against. We've never had a teacher last more than two months, not even the most experienced teacher that has come. You'll likely take an awful beating because you're so young. I do appreciate your warning, sir, replied the teacher, but I need the job and I'm willing to take the risk. The director sighed deeply and hired the man. The next morning, the young teacher sat at his desk watching the students as they came into the classroom. Several of the boys gathered in the back before they went to their seats and it was clear that to the teacher as he watched them come in that the leader was the biggest and obviously the oldest of the boys. Big Tom, they called him. He was the bully of the class. The boys were talking in low tones among themselves, looking often towards the teacher. And finally, Big Tom said, deliberately loud enough that the teacher could overhear him, he said, I don't need no help with this one. When I get alone with him and when I get done with him, he won't dare set foot in this classroom again. When all the students were seated, the teacher rose and he said, Good morning, I'm Mr. Wilson. I'm your new teacher. I can't teach without order, and we can't have order without rules. So I want you to help me make the rules. Tell me what rules you think I ought to have, and I'll list them on the blackboard. Now, the class had never before been asked to participate in establishing order and, and Big Tom, he didn't know what to make of it. He decided to wait and see how all of this turned out and what the fallout would be before he would put his screws on this new teacher. No stealing, called out a student. Mr. Wilson wrote it on the back blackboard. No being late, cried another one. He wrote it on the blackboard. No lying, rang out a third voice. The students began to get in the swing of things, and soon Mr. Wilson had ten rules written on the blackboard. This looks like a good set of rules, he said. They're your own rules, so 
Do all of you agree with these rules? Sure, we agree with them, the class replied, snickering and looking slyly at one another. Okay, said Mr. Wilson. Rules can't be enforced without penalties for breaking them. What penalty would you, oppose, would you impose if a rule is broken? Big Tom spoke up. Whoever breaks a rule gets ten licks across his bare back. Making a tough rule bolstered his tough and mean reputation. Mr. Wilson thought the penalty was too severe. Does everyone agree with this penalty, he asked. Nobody dared to contradict Big Tom. And so he wrote down the rules. He wrote down the penalty. Very well, he said. Ten licks it will be. Big Tom's involvement in this process made him feel big enough that he didn't want to bother Mr. Wilson that day. And so the next morning, class resumed and went smoothly until the noon bell rang. Big Tom's voice boomed out, Somebody stole my lunch. Keep your seats, class, said the teacher. No one eats until we find out who stole Big Tom's lunch. He questioned each member of the class, one after another, and all of them denied committing the theft. But finally, a little ten-year-old boy wearing a worn-out coat wailed, I had done it. It was me. I was so hungry. I couldn't help it. I was sorry. Mr. Wilson's heart sank. Jimmy, you know the rule. I have to give you ten licks on your bare back. Take off your coat. Oh, teacher, please, Jimmy Beg, do whatever you got to do, but don't make me take off my coat. But the teacher was firm. That was the rule. The little boy slowly began to unbutton his coat with tears streaming down his cheeks. He was wearing no shirt under the coat. There was nothing on him except the suspenders that held up his pants. Mr. Wilson had a hard dilemma. How can I possibly whip this poor child, he thought. But if I don't, I'll lose control of the class forever. He stalled and he asked, Jimmy, why didn't you wear a shirt today? Jimmy said it's because mom's been real poor since dad got killed in the mine. I've only got one shirt. On wash day, mom washes it and I have to wear my brother's coat. I'll get my shirt back tomorrow. It was all Mr. Wilson could do to make him pick up the paddle. He turned Jimmy's scrawny back to him. He lifted up the paddle and then he hesitated for a moment trying to work up the courage to administer the punishment that he was about to take. Suddenly, Big Tom jumped up in the back. Don't do it, Mr. Wilson. Don't do it. I want to take Jimmy's licking for him. He walked quickly to the front of the classroom, stripping off his shirt as he went. The teacher nodded, handed Jimmy his coat, and stood Big Tom in his place. As he ministered the strokes, he realized that every child in the room was crying, little Jimmy most of all. Suddenly, the little boy ran over to Big Tom, threw his arms around his neck, and clung to him, and he said, Oh, Tom, oh, Tom, I'm sorry I stole your lunch. I hate that I've done this to you, but I want you to know that I'll love you till my dying day for taking the licking that I should have had. The hearts of those hardened boys were broken forever. Big Tom became Jimmy's savior.
That story is a picture of what Jesus did for you and me. All of us have broken the rules. We deserve the prescribed punishment, which is death. But Jesus looked on us as frail human beings, fallen creatures. He could not stand to punish us and destroy us. He loved us so much, he couldn't stand the thought of spending eternity without us. And so he took off his coat, the one that the executioners had gambled for. And he stretched out his arms on those wooden bars of the cross and suffered the punishment of death for you and for me. He is our Savior. He saves us from the wrath of eternity and the fires of hell forever and ever. But he also died to save us from the wrath of that tribulation period that the world will go through when God pours out his wrath to punish mankind for the rejection and rebellion against God. Again, I say to you, if he's going to punish and purify Israel, and he's going to punish and deal with the Gentiles who have rejected the Savior, what need is there for his church to go through that tribulation when we've already been forgiven and saved and our sins were already paid for on the cross at Calvary? If you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, He died for you. He died for me. He took our punishment. He became our substitute. He became our Savior. Today, if you've never trusted Him, give your life to Him. And if you have trusted Him, live for Him. Do like little Jimmy. Throw your arms around Him and say, I'll love you forever because of what you did for me. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we know that there is wrath to come. But we know that the wrath of our God has already been placed on the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary. We'll never have to face the wrath of hell for eternity. And there's no need for us to go through the wrath of the tribulation because we have placed our trust in you. We've already turned from our rebellion and been forgiven. Lord, I pray that if there's one person here today that's never trusted you, that they'll come to you today and let you be their Savior. Help us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.